0: Kevin here with a quick announcement. If you've tried to send email to us in the last, I don't know, six months, uh, it turns out that the email addresses that we were using weren't actually correctly forwarding to us. So they're working now. uh, Thanks to listener Ben for uh, pointing the error out and going to heroic efforts to figure out a contact email for us. But if you've sent feedback, we're sorry we didn't receive it. Um, So try again now, comments at immunity.org. And the form on the website should now be functional. And of course, Facebook always works. So with that, after a little delay, here's the show. This is Audio Immunity, a podcast about our body's never-ending fight with the outside world.
1: Hello, this is Audio Immunity. Thanks for uh, downloading us today. I'm... Kate Franz, and with me today is Kevin Bonham. Hello, hello. And Matt Woodruff. Hi, everybody. Awesome. So before we hop into the paper, what are you guys drinking today?
2: So last time uh, we recorded, I was drinking vodka, if you remember. And so I'm sort of swinging the pendulum on the other direction and decided to go with tea today. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Are you sick? Is something wrong? no 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 i just decided that i would eventually start coming across as an alcoholic so it was probably best not to consume straight liquor all the time (laughs) i see well thanks for throwing the rest of us under the bus because i'm definitely
0: drinking beer Uh, all right well
1: (laughs) i mean i did accuse you of being a little spring break last last episode so yeah you did (laughs) yeah the tea it's the overcorrection you're overcorrecting
2: it's okay that's fine. It's fine. Uh, it was cold today, Kate, actually. In Atlanta. You look like you're Atlanta. also drinking tea.
1: I am. I still have my uh, root canal, and I refuse to get drunk with a open tooth in my mouth because uh-huh. that just sounds like a very bad situation.
0: Also, so I'm the I'm the only one drinking. Is that what you're saying? Yeah,
1: okay. So yes, but I will start drinking again once it's February because I'm I'm also doing dry January. I think I mentioned I that last time.
0: You did. Right. Um,
1: because you. I read about how abstaining from alcohol for like a couple, like a month or so, really improves your liver function. And Was so, that a
2: Vox article by any chance?
1: So I actually, so I actually learned about this because my friend had decreased liver function, and his doctor <laughs> told him, "Don't mm-hmm. drink for three months. Come wow. back and let's see um, how it goes." and mm. it worked <laughs> his liver is really good so i was like you know, <laughs> this is a detox like an actual detox a true mm. detox i'm just decreasing although, although, the liver toxins and right. helping my liver recover a little bit
2: are you so, worried that you're just going to replace that with vicodin with the root canal
1: i actually have not taken any um pain medication
2: all right
1: yeah well i mean it kind of makes sense root canals actually or at least mine was not painful because they go in and they bleach your nerve dead, so you really mm-hmm. can't feel anything anymore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> do, they, do they literally use bleach? Yes. Wow. wow. You can smell it. <laughs> I was like, that's gross. Yeah, actually. it is.
1: wasn't. It wasn't great, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm no longer in pain. I can eat rice again. That was embarrassing. Congratulations, Soup.
0: that's wonderful. Yeah. All right, well, I guess I guess since I'm the only one, I should actually describe what I'm drinking. So I got this. It's called a triple but not like a belgian triple like t-r-i-p-l-e this is sort of a weird combination of a belgian brew an ipa and a lager so, so i've seen an, so i've seen like the a, idea of an, it's
1: like a blend it's like a red blend or something <laughs> i don't know so
0: red blend so i've seen this idea of ipl before <laughs> india uh india pale lager which is sort of a weird it's like a a lager style brew but using lots of hops like oh, an IPA disgusting um, and then so this is apparently a new take i've also had belgian style ipas but this is a belgian style ipl and they're doing a play on the whole belgian triple thing by calling it tripl i feel like which there is, was way too much thought that went into this whoo. maybe maybe but i'm going <laughs> to i'm going to try it and but, see if it's any good. It good so yeah well, yeah, it's all right. I really yeah.
1: want to try the Boulevard chocolate raspberry.
0: That sounds gross. Oh, it sounds Seconded. delicious.
1: Love chocolate. Love raspberries. Love beer. I don't know how that goes
0: wrong. <laughs> Mixing things together that are all good is not always the best way to go. <laughs> but perhaps we should we should move on to science. Uh, so today we're doing a paper that Kate suggested, which is weird for me because I feel like I haven't thought about innate immunity much since i defended <laughs> over a year ago and it's
1: only what your phd almost is about. two years
0: ago yeah but i haven't thought about it in a long time yeah. so reading this was kind of like a blast from the past but it's called uh, transmission of innate immune signaling by packaging of c-gamp in viral particles and I the guess. first author is Matteo Gentili, and the last author is nicholas Minnell. And it looks like they're from France. Yes, yeah, they're from
1: France. I met him at Toll Oh uh, cool. when I went to Toll meeting. Yeah, he was really, really nice and spent a bunch of time talking to me um, at my poster, which I will tell you, not a lot of PIs will do because they want to hang out with their cool PI friends and not hang out with lame grad students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They really don't like grad students. They think they take down the party, (laughs) but whatever. Uh, But he he was really lovely. Um, And with this paper, there was another paper that reported the same observation, and that it was also um, published in Science, and that paper is called Viruses Transfer, the Antiviral Second Messenger Seagamp Between Cells. And the uh, first author on that paper is Bridgman, and the last author is, well, this is going to be an interesting just kind of first take. (laughs) <laughs> ray winkle <laughs>
0: hmm. okay
1: and okay. uh they seem to be at university of oxford so both these papers came out but we're, we'll only talk about the one because nicola was so nice to me at toll
0: also, <laughs> i think that's has... a good good way to make a choice <laughs> no, yeah. no, it's
2: not bad no not uh, bad. this one
1: has dendritic cells and i thought that'd be a nicer entry point for you too
2: <laughs> <laughs> thanks kate you're welcome yeah. looking out Although I will say that my one criticism of this paper is going to be the use of the term dendritic cell, but <laughs> anyway,
0: yeah, that's bad.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, so this paper, I guess, so what uh, Kevin was talking about has has to do with the innate immunity, and so Kevin and I, well, Kevin has did his PhD studying innate immunity, and my PhD revolves around. Um, proteins that are involved in innate immunity. Um, and so we've talked about it before, but just as like a refresher. So the innate immune system, we know that we have the professional immune system as T cells and B cells. We talk about it on this podcast all the time. Um, but there's an immune system that responds first and quick when you be, uh, become infected with a, some sort of pathogen. And this is the innate immune system, and it's present inside all of your cells. So I, I like to think of the innate immune system as... The innate immune system or the immune system for your cells so there's like the tiny one inside every single cell and then there's a larger immune system that's systemic throughout your body Um, can i just interrupt
0: briefly on that so i just want to be clear so these are not they're often talked about the innate and the adaptive immune system are often talked about in sort of separate terms um and it's useful to categorize that that way but i just want to make it clear that these systems aren't wholly independent they're communicating with each other constantly exactly and so though though you might study only an innate immune response it's worth noting that all the stuff that happens in the innate immune system is directly linked in and necessary for the adaptive immune system and one of the main functions of the adaptive immune system is to communicate and sort of enhance or direct the innate immune system so do you mean to reverse that huh
1: do you mean to reverse that
0: no, I think it goes in both directions. Like T-cell cytokines are acting on macrophages oh, and okay,
1: okay, okay. things like that. Okay. Yes, definitely. So the innate immune I mean, so I study the innate immune system in the context of viruses, and I don't really care about T-cells and B-cells. <laughs> um, and I think the innate immune system is interesting, um, independent of its role in triggering and turning on the adaptive immune system. Um, because I'm not a real immunologist, so... True. Um, yes, but if you look at the Nobel Prizes that were awarded for the discovery of the components of the innate immune system, they say the importance of these discoveries is finding the mechanism by which the adaptive immune system is
2: activated. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> so it's like right, right in... Um, the accolades for the, these discoveries. They talk about the implications in the adaptive Yeah, they just system. shove
0: that knife right under the ribs yeah. of all the innate immunologists. <laughs> but right.
1: I, I, I do think that it, it, is a, it is a slightly overlooked point that the adaptive immune system is, is very effective at fighting off infections, or it has a very important role in blocking the establishment of infections. So if you have a very effective innate immune system you um you you never need your adaptive immune
2: system <laughs> sure Sure. And I think it's worth, too, we we talk, again, innate and adaptive systems. And even when we're talking about innate systems, we're often talking about cellular hematopoietic immunology, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I think it's also worth noting that when we talk about, because you're going to get into these innate sensing mechanisms whereby an innate immune cell can detect whether there's a virus in the area, whether there's a bacteria in the area... It's also worth mentioning that it's not, the innate response is not just restricted to the hematopoietic lineage.
1: Yeah, absolutely So,
2: we're going to probably at some point talk about how each individual cell, stromal cells, so muscle cells, blood vessel wall cells, you know, skin cells, dermal cells, obviously not epidermal cells because they don't have a nucleus. Yeah. Um, But all of these cells come equipped with their own antiviral, at least, and I assume some antibacterial mechanisms that sort of help the cellular innate immune system do their job. So, yeah, the innate... The idea of an innate system is a very broad idea, I suppose.
1: Especially when you think about epithelial cells and fibroblasts, which are a major cell type that are at the barriers of between, like... So, like, your skin your gut, you have these epithelial cells, you have these, um, s- these uh, support cells, these fibroblasts. And these cells, um, because they are where you interact with the environment, is where a lot of infection starts. So when you inhale air and you inhale droplets of spit or water that have flu viruses in, you know, the flu virus will go into uh, epithelial cells that are like in your nasal passages when you eat a, something that's a little nasty, you get infections <laughs> in the epithelial layer of your gut and maybe get a little diarrhea. Um, so, these these cells that are infected first also have an innate immune system and are important for um, curbing these infections. So, you don't die from two bucket disease, as I like to call it
0: <laughs> double <Gross>. dragoning.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, God. Uh. Yeah, so, so, so uh, <laughs> let, let me let me just throw one more wrinkle in here. So what do you uh-huh. think about there's there's one sort of layer that's even more basic, I think. So you mentioned the idea that the innate immune system is the immune system for your cells as opposed to the adaptive immune system which we might think of as uh, the systemic immune system. Mm-hmm. But there's also a sort of even more local. So the, the innate immune system will when it gets triggered, it will also signal to neighboring cells, and we're going to yes. talk about that in this paper. Yes. So it will also release paracrine signals like interferons. One of the most important. Some cytokines, obviously. Yeah.
1: That's how the adaptive gets activated. That's how other non-specialized cells become resistant to infections.
0: Right, but there's also this idea, and I've uh, some people like to distinguish it from innate immune system. The idea of the intrinsic immunity or the intrinsic immune system which is really cell specific and so this is like things like uh, trim 5 alpha and things like that do you how do you feel about that distinction so these are proteins that are expressed within cells that supposedly affect infection within that cell but they don't signal more widely they don't have more systemic function
1: I mean, so those those sorts of things I call restriction factors. So mm-hmm. restriction factors are proteins. They're, they're actually usually interferon regulated, so they're usually turned on when interferon is, is signaling. Um, but they're proteins that have evolved to block the infection at, of viruses. I I don't know if there are any restriction factors for bacteria. I don't study bacteria, so I'm not I'm not entirely sure. But so a Trim five alpha is a protein that prematurely um, disrupts the capsid organization of HIV when it enters a cell um, so it can stop the infection of HIV. There's a bunch of different HIV restriction factors that have been identified. Another one that will be in this paper um, is SAMHD1, which um, lowers the available pools of nucleotides. So replication is very hard for the viruses. So you you can kind of block replication. I don't... So I have a friend who studies who or for his PhD studied restriction factors like, and studied these um these sorts of like antiviral mechanisms and he was very adamant that it was not immunity and in any form that it's just cell biology <laughs> but i hmm. do think that it does have a place being called innate immunity because it's something that is evolved specifically against a pathogen evolved in such a way that the pathogen um has a very difficult time Um, evolving around it and blocks the the infection. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think when we think about the sensors of the innate immune system, like the canonical players in the innate immune system, one way that we identify them is their evolutionary role. So like the fact that they evolved to detect pathogens and restriction factors have done the same thing. In fact, Mm -hmm. you can't be called a restriction factor until you can prove that there's been positive selection for um, the protein over time.
2: Hmm. I feel like any immunological mechanism is just cell biology, right, when it comes (laughs) down to it. So I'm not quite sure that I buy that. And and I think that we're not trying to pigeonhole it by calling it innate immunity, like it's not part of any other system. I think it's really just because you talk about protein cascades too, right? So complement, which is a protein system that's set up in the blood, And it's ancient, ancient systems where basically anything that's not eukaryotic that doesn't have complement, uh, basically something that doesn't have the ability to cleave the complement protein off its surface gets targeted by these proteins. And, you know, these are totally cell-free environments. So Mm -hmm. I I just consider all of it part of your general innate response. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think I'm more interested in the idea that these are factors that have evolved to stop infections than I am that the innate immune system has to end in a transcriptional um, response, which some people might argue. Mm -hmm. But I personally don't study. I study non-transcriptional responses of the the innate immune system. So I'm very partial (laughs) to Mm -hmm. saying that transcription isn't the full story. Um, though without transcription, you would never activate the adaptive immune system. So if you think right. the innate immune system is only important because it activates adaptive immunity, you probably don't give a shit about
0: <laughs> restriction factors. Right. Right. Yeah, and it's also worth noting that these these labels that we give to things are entirely human constructed. Sure. It's, yeah, it's so, just
1: fun to put things in boxes.
0: Right. Okay, anyway, sorry for that long hmm. divergent.
1: Yeah. So today, though, we will be talking about the transcription about the innate immunity that um, ends in a transcriptional response. So sig- signaling that ends in a, in the activation of transcription. So, I mean, the I feel like we've, we've gone over this before, but um, when a path- It's always worth repeating. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I almost feel like I can, I can just go on autopilot with this. <laughs> so <I'm> call me <laughs> out if it sounds too autopiloty. But when um, a pathogen enters your cell, there are pieces of that pathogen that are molecularly distinct from your your own cell. So there are patterns, we call them pathogen-associated molecular patterns. So these are um, components of a virus or a bacteria that are not found naturally in human cells. And or mouse cells, if you're me and you care about mice immunity. Um, but so these host cells have sensors that have evolved to detect these molecular patterns. And they've picked these patterns because um, the bugs cannot evolve away from them. So these are things like the genomes of viruses, the um, cell walls of bacteria. The viruses and bacteria are not able to mutate away and like lose these components. The virus always has to have its genome, um, so it's not going to be able to lose its genome. So um, these sensors that detect these molecular patterns are called pattern recognition receptors, or PRRs. And when these PRRs are activated, they send a signal down to an adapter in the cell that then coordinates a transcriptional response. And these transcriptional responses, usually uh, we talk about the production of interferon. And so interferon is this really great um, signaling molecule that... Can signal, if i do
2: say so myself if i do say so myself <laughs> it's very i
1: mean it's very interesting um, i mean it's used therapeutically to treat a lot of to treat quite a few diseases um, and infections and so interferon is released from a cell it can then turn around and bind the cell it came out of or it will go and bind to other cells nearby and when it I binds call that
0: autocrine and paracrine autocrine signaling autocrine
1: signaling and so when it when it binds the outside of a cell this transduces another signal through the cell to activate even more transcription. And um, these, these uh, genes that are transcribed are called interferon-stimulated genes, and they have antiviral, antibacterial properties, and they protect a cell from being infected. So once a cell that has never been infected receives the interferon, resp- like senses interferon is in the media, binds the protein, it then activates all these... Um, The transcription of all these genes, and um, the proteins are made, and these cells become pretty much impossible to infect with virus. So, you can protect yourself by um, using interferon.
2: I think this is a really important point. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Matt. So, uh, do we know how far... So, we talk about sometimes the localization of immune response uh, in, Mm -hmm. in vivo systems, which is something that I think people don't think about often enough. So we we often talk about these antiviral states, and that's how I always thought about the interferon response, as sort of creating a localized antiviral state where the surrounding cells and tissues are kind of a little bit more resistant than they were before. Mm-hmm. Do we know, has there been a study that shows exactly how far that antiviral state extends? So do we get, do you get interferons released into the lymphatics? Do you get, you know, is the... I know the, the lymph node eventually will see signals from the ensuing innate response, but I don't know if interferon itself actually well, finds its you can certainly way. detect interferon in serum. So, yeah. so you, you think the entire get... organism goes into, a, into an antiviral state, or do you think well, that it's... Well, I'm not sure how much
0: interferon is getting out of the serum into other local tissue. I suspect that, I mean, I don't know if there has been a... The direct answer to your question, if there has been a study, I don't know what it is but i suspect that you have there is a large concentration dependence Mm -hmm. to the antiviral state to the signaling that's induced by interferon so the local environment that is getting the most interferon production is going to get the most interferon signaling and is going to have the strongest antiviral state but you do get release of of you do get systemic release of interferon and so you can get you know endocrine effects of local inflammation Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Interferon itself is not a pyrogen, is it, Kate?
1: Not that I know of.
0: Okay, I don't,
1: I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but,
0: but anyway, the, I, the
1: one thing I would say, so because interferon has been used therapeutically, people have done different different sort of uh, pharmacology studies on it, and they would have looked at how how deeply penetrating can interferon get in an animal. Um, and as much as you could in a human, but I've never read those those like clinical trials. So I've, also, I have no And also, a therapeutic
0: clue. dose of interferon is probably going to be different than the actual interferon that's produced.
2: Yeah, I'm. I guess infection. I'm just wondering in a normal, you know, surface response, how much interferon could I expect at that local place versus downstream tissue and things like that. You know, how much how much of my hand is really strongly antiviral if I put it on a nail that's now wounded. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. uh, Matt, you froze on me. So your
0: your response was, I'm sure, recorded, but uh, I didn't hear what you said. But I think I have the gist. Um, I also wanted to mention, it's worth, I think, stating that this idea that interferons lead to a situation where you're very resistant to future infection. I think a question that often comes up, at least among my students, is like, why wouldn't you always have the antiviral signaling. If if signaling of interferon induces a state where you are less susceptible to viral infection, why wouldn't you just always have it yeah, on?
1: because it's not that and, great for yourself.
0: <laughs> right, so, so the antiviral state it protects you from infection and it's worth it if you have positive signal that an infection is happening. You want to turn on this antiviral state to protect the local tissue from future infection. But All of these proteins that are doing things like restricting nucleotides that Kate mentioned or uh, inflammation generally can be really damaging. And this is true of most immune responses. Most immune responses cause damage. And we want to restrict them only to the times that they're necessary to actually combat infection. If you always have them on, you're going to be in trouble.
1: And if you do always have them on, you're going to develop autoimmunity. I almost said audio immunity.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do that all the time now. It's really frustrating. (laughs)
1: There are um, different diseases that the characteristic is that there's a high level of interferon being produced, just completely unregulated. And um, the effects are pretty painful. Sure. Um, It's not a
2: great... I would point out, though, that in a lot of those studies, there's, or in a lot of those diseases, the cause effect has not really been worked out. So it could be that there was another insult independent of interferon alpha. So in mouse studies, for example, of um, what's the the lupus model that we always used to use? SLE. No. Uh nope. I mean that's
1: just lupus, isn't it? No, yeah, is that's just mouse lupus. I don't no, know. the I
2: don't know. We what I'm used to about. use this model. Anyway, <laughs> it, it doesn't really matter. You do get these high levels of oh, interferon you know what I'm I'm induction. EAE. Yeah, yeah, EAE. it's not EAE. It's a it's a lupus like mouse model. Oh, okay. But um but you do get a lot of type one interferon or type yeah, actually. Well, I was thinking, you so there's... But but you can treat with
0: anti-interferon and get relief of some symptoms right sure but you so, but you can
2: yeah exactly it's so, it's a little bit unclear it's a chicken and egg problem yeah. but it's pretty clear that the interferon is really important in b cell responses and b cell responses you know lead to antibody production and you know yeah. all of those things so it definitely feeds back on itself but yeah. it, it clearly there, is involved
1: they're like there are some where you just have overactive transcriptional adapters so like there's a, a autoimmunity where you have a, an active allele of sting and so they have like all sorts of like skin rashes and kind of kind of like gnarly sure. pathology and there's like the trex one deletion I think um, it's pretty clear that that's just like an uh, an overproduction of interferon in the brain
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, that sounds um, awful
1: it's not great
0: But speaking of sting, Kate...
1: Yes, sting. (laughs) Sting is my baby. (laughs) Yeah, so we've talked before that there are different types of viruses. Obviously, there are many different types of viruses, but there are two broad groups of viruses, um, and we categorize them on the type of genome that they have. So if a virus encodes all of its proteins um, in a genome that is made of rna we call them rna viruses so these are flu viruses different cold viruses viruses that give you diarrhea or hemorrh- hemorrhagic fevers a lot of those are rna viruses um, or dengue right dengue is an rna virus yeah zika virus if you've been listening into the news is an rna virus um, and then viruses that encode all of their their genes in DNA are called DNA viruses, and probably the most famous DNA virus is herpes. And- With good
0: reason. <laughs> yeah. With good reason, herpes is a is a very widespread virus.
1: Exactly, one of the most prevalent you, you viruses. You have it.
0: Don't pretend that you don't. Me. I'm, you, the listening oh, audience. the listening all audience. Of you. <laughs> I've actually Everyone. been
1: titered for all of my, So, a while back when I was working with um, live HIV, we would get titered for HIV um, just to make sure we hadn't accidentally contaminated ourselves, uh-huh. uh, which is lovely. Uh, not stressful at all. And on the form, you can pick all the viruses you'd like to be titered against. So, I just picked everything. <laughs> I titered, so, I got... All of like, I got my um, Hep B titers. That's actually to look at the efficacy of the vaccine too. Um, I got my EBV, my CMV, my HSV one, my two. I was like, I loved knowing all this information. And I was. But you're not going to share it with us. I will absolutely share it with you. (laughs) I was one and two negative, but positive for CMV. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But I mean, I
0: definitely I've never been titered, but I get cold sores. All the fucking time, and it's really irritating, so...
1: Yeah, I've never had a cold sore.
0: I hate you. Yeah,
1: I'm sorry. I mean, I'm a woman, so I have other things that, you know, bother me from time to time, so let's just call it even.
0: <laughs> okay, fair enough. So sorry. I was taking a, a sip of, of my tea. tea. <laughs> oh,
1: so. Okay, so RNA and DNA viruses. So, um, there are different pattern recognition receptors to recognize RNA viruses and a different pattern recognition receptor to recognize DNA viruses. Um, So the DNA recognizing pathway um, is the most elegant, beautiful pathway, C-gas and Sting. And so C-gas is a sensor that directly binds to double-stranded DNA. And when it does so, it synthesizes a small molecule that is a uh, cyclic dinucleotide. Okay, so this is the sickest thing that happened during my PhD time was the discovery of sea gas and the cyclic dinucleotide c
0: Yeah, this is only like a couple years old, right? Yeah, this pretty, came I feel out, like there's been an explosion this out of Christmas, these papers.
1: Christmas of 2012. Um, <laughs> it was Kate, a, has,
0: Kate has the date in her diary. I do. Had... It came
1: out like December like 21st, 2012. Because <laughs> it was like all the ones and twos. Um, so C-gamp is a cyclic dinucleotide and it is the first cyclic dinucleotide identified in metazoan species. Usually cyclic dinucleotides we see them signaling in um, bacteria. And so it's really important for different bacterial processes. Um, but this was the first one that was identified of metazoa, which I thought was really cool. Um, so we should
0: we should say what what this is. So people have probably heard of like ATP As the energy source for cells. Yes. But uh, that A in ATP is the same A that is used in like DNA and RNA. Yes. So it's a a nucleotide and the triphosphate form, that's the TP in ATP, is just the energy bound form. And you can also make uh, diphosphate and monophosphate versions of these nucleotides. And there's also... You know, the DNA code is A, T, G, and C. There's also CTP and TTP and GTP. And all of these... GTP is used in a lot of other signaling processes. Um, the other triphosphated nucleotides are uh, mostly used to construct more DNA. But a cyclic dinucleotide is essentially a where you take two of these nucleotides and you hook them together covalently so they form a circle. They form a closed loop. Yeah. Um and maybe we we should probably put a f- like a picture of this uh in the show notes or something. Yes. But um there there are other cyclic nucleotides that people may have heard of like uh cAMP is a second messenger that's taught in a lot of biochemistry courses so that's cyclic uh adenosine monophosphate but that's a a single nucleotide mm-hmm. that's that's uh covalently bound in a loop. This is a so cGAMP is an AMP, so a adenosine monophosphate, and uh, an AMP, so an adenosine. Wait, GMP, that, right? <laughs> GMP. Thank yeah. you. We should uh, definitely have a diagram of these. Yeah, uh, and and so it's it's two nucleotides that are stuck in a loop. So,
1: and they are they're kind of hooked onto each other. It was a big controversy how these things were hooked onto each other <laughs> uh, when CGAMP first was discovered. Everyone thought that it was a three prime three prime. So. Three prime just means Whoa, the third carbon idiots. in the sugar.
2: Um, <laughs> the third
1: carbon in the sugar was linked to the phosphate group of the, or like through a phosphate linkage to the second carbon of the second sugar, or the third, sh- ah, the third carbon of the, th- <laughs> the third carbon of the second <laughs> molecule,
0: but of, of the fourth, just
1: like, cause yeah, it, anyway, we thought that they looked more like bacterial dinucleotides, but now when we look at the linkages we see that it's actually slightly different and it, it actually leads to different signaling. Um if you if you see the different linkages, they signal diff- slightly differently. Hmm. Anyway.
0: So can you can you make a a C GAMP that is linked in the more bacterial way, for lack of a better phrase? Yeah and it has different effects?
1: Well it's so if you have the bacterial type C GAMP. It will signal in mouse cells. So mouse. So the the receptor, I should say, the receptor of cAMP is the molecule, is the protein Sting, which is one of my favorite proteins. And Do you so know what Sting stands for Sting stands for Stimulator of Interferon Genes, um, which is a cute little acronym. Um,
0: yeah, but that's kind of a, a crappy acronym because it's always done in all caps, and I feel like it should be if it's well, if that's the case. I I didn't know that. I, but if that's the case,
2: I feel like it should be capital S, lowercase T. Let's not pretend that these the acronyms is, are well thought out or implemented. That,
1: um, <laughs> if, if we do it, it's gonna, every time I write a paper, it's going to look like I'm actually writing in my live journal.
0: Right. Okay, <laughs> fair enough.
1: <laughs> R.I.P. live journal. <laughs> I feel
2: like the acronym world has to, has to undergo what the cluster of differentiation molecules did. However long ago, where we just need to get no. rid of a lot of these things and start numbering them. <laughs> you will no. take my no. proteins Kevin, and replace them Kevin with disagrees. numbers over
1: my cold dead body. <laughs> like if that ever happens, I'm gonna, f- I am going to defect into flies full time because flies have the coolest <laughs> gene names <laughs> and they will never go to stupid numbers because those people are nuts.
2: They are and, nuts. Uh, the probably CD, nuts. The CD, Don't the take cluster that of as differentiation a thing, thing is... in our lab who works on flies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: the cluster of differentiation thing is a pain in the ass and i hate it
2: yeah but you have numbers that actually correlate to proteins in people's minds right the problem with these acronyms is we've gotten so far that the acronyms now start referring to previously held acronyms and so you can get into the acronym and come up with another acronym and I, also I'm well not aware of this to, it's ridiculous I, I did this as an
0: exercise one time like on my blog back in 2010 and I took a three word or a three letter acronym that expanded out into like 15 words. Yeah, that's absurd. I mean, it works. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. When you have when you have a nature paper that has both the word ninja and the word topless in it, and you can publish that in the highest impact journal in the world,
2: I think that's better than CD whatever the hell. I mean, it is clever. I'll give you that. It's clever. But it's only sort of clever at this point. Also... I'd like to try to reinstate a moratorium on all talks with colons in them. I was recently given another pamphlet. I don't want anyone out there listening to put together talks that have colons in them.
1: I think that's really are rude you, talk, are you to talking gastroenterology? About the yeah, yeah.
2: No, <laughs> <gonna> actually, <laughs> no, no
1: more talks on my floor.
2: <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is actually a mouse intestinal uh, <laughs> talk. Oh. So it's got both kinds of colons in them. Yes. Yes. Correct.
0: Sorry. I, I think so normally normally when I edit this podcast I have my audio editing software delete long silences. I feel like in this episode I'm going to need to leave in these pregnant pauses <laughs> there's, because there's there been a couple of them. them.
1: <laughs> Cuz we just think about be more what, we've, what we've done.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> Back on topic. <laughs> so And I'm the
0: only one that's drinking in this podcast. (laughs) Uh.
1: Viral DNA enters a cell. gas binds the DNA. I am oversimplifying this a bit. There are regulators and other things, but we don't care about them right now. Uh, gas binds viral DNA, makes a small molecule, CGAMP, and CGAMP travels to Sting. Sting is located in the ER of a cell. Travels to Sting and um, binds Sting, and Sting is activated. It recruits transcription factors, and interferon is turned on. Okay. Super cool. So um, HIV, when it is infecting cells, um, it's kind of an interesting virus in that its genome, when it enters the cell, is RNA, but it's quickly reverse transcribed um, into DNA. So we kind of think of HIV, at least I do, from an innate perspective as a DNA virus. Um, So when HIV makes its DNA and then the DNA is then inserted into the host genome, that DNA can be t- – ab- either that DNA that's being inserted or abortive transcripts of this DNA um, are activate C-gas. And that's probably the most – one of the more important things to know about this paper before going into <laughs> when, this paper. Is that when,
0: you say, when you say abortive transcripts, do you mean abortive reverse transcripts? Yes. Oh. So – uh, I, reverse... It never even occurred to me that that was a thing, although, of course, it makes oh, 100%, 100%. sense that it is, but...
1: 100%. Yeah, so when the when the reverse transcription is occurring, you can have an abortive event happen where you just make some of the DNA and not all of it, or, like, halfway through, you run out of nucleotides, or you, like, there's, like, an error catastrophe and everything just goes to pot. Like, there are a lot of... Um, then Goes to
0: pot. I really like that phrase. Yeah, mm. <laughs>
1: I thought I would try to like lower the s bombs.
0: <laughs> there's there's already been there's already been multiple curse words. Yeah, I for, marked them I, in I my audio I so I know to that, remove. So
1: <laughs> I thought I'd I'd uh, block the shh that's going to yeah. occur. Um, give can, you, I, give can I can I ask a break? question? Yeah, that
0: I should. I know that I should know the answer to this, but I don't. Okay. So I'm going to ask it. So so HIV has a. The, the RNA, single-stranded RNA genome that's reverse transcribed into a single strand of DNA?
1: No. So wrong on both counts, just from, the, oh. just from the get. So it's actually a dimer of RNA genomes. So it's not double-stranded RNA. They are, it is strand RNA, but it's a dimer of the genome. So they're actually bound together. Uh, there's base pairing at certain parts throughout the genome. Um, okay, but
0: they're not but they're not complementary strands. They're both the they same strand. They are not strand. complementary
1: strands. They are the okay. same strand. Yeah.
0: Okay. So just for simplicity's sake, let's say so we have two copies of one strand
1: Yeah.
0: of the genome. And the first thing that happens is it gets transcribed, reverse transcribed into D, a single strand of DNA. Yeah. So how is the second strand? How is the second the complementary is, yeah. DNA strand produced?
1: So, what happens is that you make the first strand of DNA, and then you flip around to the second part, to the RNA-DNA hybrid, and you start um, um, chewing away the RNA to use that, that, that DNA strand as a, as a template for the second strand of DNA. And
0: the reverse transcriptase is yeah. doing this as well? Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah, so the reverse transcriptase has RNAse activity, so it can digest RNA. Um, and DNA polymerase activity, so it can actually I, I make just, strands of DNA.
0: I just taught an extension school at the virology course, so I should really know this. But the good news is, is that Jamie gave the lecture
1: yeah, she, for she, the she HIV, <laughs> so she
0: she took that she took care of that, and I was not paying attention apparently. It's,
1: so I really oversimplified. It sounds vaguely it. familiar. Yeah, but... I, I did oversimplify it. There are a bunch of different like there's like primers involved. Obviously, if you have learned about uh, transcription or like the the DNA synthesis, there is like a little bit more and it's kind of confusing. It's like a nine-step process, but...
0: Super cool molecular biology, but we're going to skip yeah, it essentially, for this podcast.
1: <laughs> you use the template RNA for DNA strand and then it gets digested and you use that DNA strand that's left over as a template for the second strand. Cool. Yeah. And you can... So because there's so many steps, you can you can lose the transcripts at a lot of... You can... The actual uh, synthesis can like stop for a number number of different reasons, Mm -hmm. um, just in the regulation of it. Yeah. But take home message is that the HIV DNA activates C gas. And that has been in a couple of different papers now. So, (laughs) now that we've explained the background for an hour, (laughs) we'll get to the paper, which is uh, well worth it. I think, so I think that this paper was one of my favorite papers of 2015 and that the idea behind it was really cute. Like it was like quirky. You wouldn't have you wouldn't exactly have expected it. I, so.
0: Remember from a couple episodes ago when Kate says cute, that's that's not like a oh that's cute, like sarcastic cute. She actually means it.
1: I it's cute, it's quirky, it's it's an interesting observation. I wouldn't say I, so that's that's like the thing I go for when I like something, but it's not the most elegant thing that's ever been laid out. It's more of the observation. And then when it's a good, when it's something's improved really interestingly, then it's more elegant. Mm-hmm. So that's where my, <laughs> these are where my, uh, my compliments break down.
0: Fair <laughs> enough. I, the thing that I thought was really interesting about this paper is it seemed like the way that they wrote it, which is the way that a lot of science happens, but people rarely like indicate this. It sounded like they were trying to look at one thing. Yes. And actually figured mm-hmm. out something else. Exactly. And they wrote it to demonstrate that, which I think is cool because I think that people don't – there's a lot of serendipity in science where we think we're looking at one thing and we find something totally different and then run with it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: But I feel like when we write up the manuscripts, we typically pretend that we had the idea all along. Yeah. Um. But so it's really nice. It was really refreshing to read the thing where they're like, yeah, so we wanted to do this thing and then we saw this other thing and turned out that was really cool and we got a science paper.
1: Yeah yeah definitely that's actually that's the other reason why I like I wanted to uh focus on this paper is it's almost it almost reads like someone's lab journal
0: right like, I did <laughs> it really this, does
1: I had no clue what the hell was going on, so I did this other experiment it's i I think I'm probably wrong um I probably have messed all this up, but I did the second experiment and like it's still everything is still corroborating this weird idea, and uh yeah, here it is <laughs>
2: yeah so I have to say. So I I sort of agree with you guys in that I think that it is interesting because it does sort of display the way that science is often discovered, but I think part of the purpose of putting together a final manuscript is to make sure that the reader is walked logically through the proof of what the the thesis is going to eventually be, and I did eventually think that this paper got there, like I, I totally bought everything that they said at the end, but When I was going through figure one, I did not know where the paper was going to go, right? Because if figure one is, hey, we did this experiment and look at this weird thing that happened, right? I'm no closer to understanding what's going on. I agree. So I I sort of, I understand what you're saying. I do like, I do like being able to see what the thought process was, but I thought that reconstructing this could have been more useful as far as guiding the reader through the paper.
0: Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Although I really, I, it kind of reads, I mean, this is a gross oversimplification but it, it kind of reads like a mystery novel like you you're presented like in a mystery the first novel. figure with like like what the hell is going on here which I think I mean yeah no I, I totally agree with you it definitely I really does read really like... <laughs> enjoy watching shows like Sherlock bones and and uh, no not so much but okay uh, but like shows like that where you like you're presented with a mystery and then it sort of goes through and then you figure out the mystery at the end Law and Order you. Um, but I, that, I never but find that... that
2: with science, and I think it's fun to <laughs> so, have it sometimes. So it's a cross-genre piece of work, yeah, is what exactly. you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, so the initial observation that um, upset Matt, uh, I, I actually... <laughs> it, it did not upset me. So, I'm joking. Uh, yeah. The, uh, well, maybe
2: I should just, before we even okay. go into the data, I, I should just say that um, the, the immune system... The adaptive immune system is great in mice because you can, pull out, uh, you can pull out B cells, you can pull out T cells, you know, you get tons of them out of any tissue that you want really. You can find a way to get enough of them where you can do an immense number of studies. It gets a little harder when you're talking about innate cells like dendritic cells and uh, macrophages, especially if those dendritic cells or macrophages have to be tissue specific. The problem with these cells is that they're incredibly diverse. So we talk about dendritic cells a lot in this show uh, on audioimmunity. But realistically, from each individual tissue that you want to pull from, if you're looking at the skin for example, you can probably pull five different subsets of dendritic cells out of the skin. And all of them look uh, pretty different from each other. They certainly have their commonalities. But they perform different functions, they respond to different things, right? And your skin resident dendritic cells are not going to look the same as your lymph node resident dendritic cells, which certainly don't look like your perineal dendritic cells. And so all of these things have their own, you know, specializations within them. Uh, The problem is that it's really hard to get any number of these cells out. So we can do uh, flow cytometry, we've talked before, and see that these cells exist, for example, in the skin, but it's really hard to get a good population of dendritic cells out of the skin in enough numbers where you can then do functional experiments on them. So one of the tricks that immunologists have used in order to sort of try to get around this is it turns out that you have... Large monocyte populations that are floating around in your blood at steady state at any given moment. And it's obviously very easy to get the blood. So, if you bleed an animal and you have these monocyte precursors, and some monocytes have the capability of differentiating into DCs, what you can do is you can put all of this blood tissue into a plate with the correct factors. So, these are dendritic cell. Uh, propagating and differentiation factors, right? And so the idea is that you're starting from a precursor and you're differentiating these cells in vitro, and what you get on the other end is a cell that looks like a dendritic cell. And so in mice, and I'm a little hesitant to talk about humans because I don't know the literature well enough, but I believe that there was a paper that just came out uh, expressing some of the same issues... In mice, we have overwhelmingly, in immunology, used these monocyte-derived dendritic cells in vitro to test really complex ideas. And it turns out that the monocyte-derived dendritic cells that we get, first of all, most labs, when they're doing these experiments, aren't actually using dendritic cells. Yeah. So uh, so this paper basically suggests, first of all, that the majority of labs that are using these monocyte-derived dendritic cells are probably not using dendritic cells at all. So if you do transcriptional analysis on the cells that they're using for these experiments, what you find is these uh, presumably pure dendritic cell populations are actually heavily contaminated with inflammatory macrophages and monocytes. Which basically, I, I mean, it's it's going to skew your, you skew your data heavily. We talk about these that's, dendritic that's cells. That's totally
0: true. Sorry to interrupt, but I, sure. Like I totally understand what you're saying, and but. For this paper in for particular, this paper,
2: yeah, so. the, the, the etiology of these cells yeah. doesn't actually it doesn't matter. doesn't actually matter. So, so the only thing that I would say here uh, on the front end of this paper is that I, I totally buy the vast majority of what's being shown as far as, you know, transfer of uh, these small molecules in a viral vector. But spoiler we'll alert. We'll get spoiler. there. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but but just be careful in how you interpret the cellular response to these things because the models that they're using don't necessarily indicate a dendritic cell right and they they
0: move away from dendritic cells also fairly quickly but the so that warning is definitely worth Heating, But in this particular case, the the nice thing about studying the innate immune system, I think Matt is showing his his bias as a (laughs) person who cares more about adaptive immunity. But the nice thing about the innate immune system is it turns out that a lot of these systems work fundamentally the same way in a lot of different cell types. And so we can study different cell types and have different output, like different readings for activation of pathways. But when you care about the activation of the pathway, it sort of doesn't matter if you have a pure population of well-differentiated DCs. All you care about is saying like, hey, we can measure co-stimulation, which is a measure of activation. So let me throw this forward. Yeah. So so
2: here's my actual concern uh, with the interpretation that these are actually DCs and they would act like DCs in vivo. I'm not convinced that a DC in vivo would be able to pull in these particles in the same way that a highly phagocytic inflammatory macrophage is, which is I think what they're probably dealing with. Um, and so right, I would but just that doesn't that doesn't actually matter in this case. Well, it does if you're talking about so it. Actually, the, does some matter of the, for some HIV. Of the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. For okay. the problem of fair. HIV, it does matter.
1: Yeah, I mean the idea that. HIV directly infects the dendritic cell, and that is how um, that's how like the activation occurs and how the immune response starts. I would say is a little controversial. Um, okay, like th- uh,
0: that's fair. I guess that that wasn't the to me that wasn't the
2: the, the it, exciting part not, of yeah, this paper. Yeah, definitely
1: not the exciting part of the paper. No, it's, it's not, not. It's not. It's not. Necessary it, and it doesn't to
2: invalidate in, yeah. any of the main conclusions. It's just an important point in the interpretation of what it means to HIV and to similar diseases. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. And, um, I actually I need to run, so um, I'm gonna
0: sign off here. I I trust you two to go through the content of the paper. All right. Yes. Um, so uh, I will see you guys later. All okay, right. We'll um, see you see later. Yeah. Okay. Bye.
1: Okay. So initial observation. Is that um, so? They made two different types of HIV virus. So these aren't encoding HIV proteins, they actually um, encode just GFP or just C-Gas. So it's a technique to um, be able to express transgenes. As you've got the inside of the HIV genome, you express all the components of the virus in a cell with the genome that um, has your gene of interest and it will package it to look like HIV, but you will not have any HIV parts inside of that virus. And so they're called lentiviral vectors. And it's a really, it's a really good tool that pretty much everyone uses, um, to get expression of, of your genes. So when they were making these, these viruses, um, and then infecting their maybe DCs with them, they saw that the viruses that, encoded C gas, activated DCs, whereas a virus encoding just a fluorescent protein as a control did not. So, they probably were just trying to make DCs that express C gas to study something about C gas. But they they got this interesting phenotype between the two different
2: viruses. So, can I ask you a quick question? Have you worked with lentivirus before? Oh, yes. Do you know what the capacity is? Like, how many genes can you insert in these things and still get good expression?
1: So, your expression goes, so your virus tighter. so essentially the length of the genome will um, determine how much virus you get out. So, the longer the genome is, the less virus you get out and the less infectious it will be.
2: Okay, um, so, okay. so it's just a trade-off.
1: Yeah, so a, you can get, like, you can get great expression off of, like, 2KB of insert. And then Mm. every KB you go past that, you probably lose like half a log of infectivity.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, So there is a limited capacity. There is a limited
1: capacity, but these are well within.
2: Sure. um, Yeah. That was just a totally technical question. I just mm -hmm. have never worked with the vectors.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So um, they first thought, so the first like reasonable hypothesis that you could make is that sea gas overexpressed... Um, will just generate a lot of the second messenger CGAMP. So they thought mm. maybe C-GAMP or C gas is inserting into the genome, expressing, and then that is how the activation is occurring. Uh, so they use this trick where um, they, if you use these viruses in the presence of the spiral protein VPX, which is from um, SIV. Mm. Um, it will counteract one of the restriction factors and it will make a more efficient uh, transduction. So you, you'll actually have a productive infection. So they remove VPX from the system, which will basically lead to the very inefficient integration of the DNA. So when you remove VPX, you are eliminating basically the C-Gas gene inserting and being expressed. And okay, they thought so- if it's just from C-Gas, VPX will eliminate all the active Taking out VPX will eliminate the activation.
2: Okay, yeah. So this lentiviral construct basically at steady state before you start modifying it contains this VPX gene. Is that reasonable? That allows the insertion of yeah, so whatever gene you put in there into the transfected cell?
1: Yeah. Essentially you um can make you can make the virus in the presence, so it will mm-hmm. carry the VPX protein with it.
2: Got it. Got it and so by eliminating VPX from some of these viral particles you're introducing the gene but you're not allowing that gene to integrate and so it can't be transcribed and so you're not actually getting sea gas production in these cells
1: exactly exactly so when they infect with these viruses without VPX the dendritic cells still activated hmm. so they had the idea that perhaps so in the production of these in the production of these viruses you When you transfect in, um, so when you have in the viral genome, you have all the virus pieces in that producer cell, the cell that makes the virus, they thought perhaps it's grabbing something from the producer cell and incorporating it into the virus. And that is what is activating the dendritic cell. So to test that directly, they made their virus again, um, but they made virus that didn't encode C gas but C gas was overexpressed in the cell or they made a, made a virus that did not have any C gas overexpressed in the cell. So they thought maybe C gas or something that is activated by C gas or something that C gas makes is incorporated into these viruses and that is what activates their dendritic cells. And so when you make virus in the presence of C gas, those will activate the dendritic cells. So that told them that there was an innate signal present inside of those viruses.
0: Yeah,
2: so this is cool and this again it gets back, it's sort of a technical component of how these viruses are made, right? There's not an initial progenitor virus that you then propagate. What you do is you take cells and you uh, transfect them with the material that encodes for the entire lentivirus, is that correct? Yeah. So, so, basically, you get the creation of this virus from a cell line from nothing just by inserting the genetic material. And so, what you're saying is even if that virus does not have sea gas, but you previously turned sea gas on in the cell that produced the virus, then that virus will become stimulatory to the cells that are receiving it. And that's really cool. Like, imagine how frustrating that would have been. To try to figure out, as a grad student, <laughs> like you're working with these viruses and you're knocking out C gas and you're like doing all of these things, and every time you put your new virus onto cells, it still activates. Yeah, I, I yeah. can't imagine how many times that experiment was done.
1: Yeah, so they did a couple more experiments to show that it's the actual virus that has the signal. So they centrifuge, so they do differential centrifugation of the supernatant, so they can essentially can isolate things that are in the supernatant of the producer cells of different sizes and they see that the activating signal always stays with the fraction that has the virus present Um, and then they play a couple more games with the virus and they show that if you don't have the protein that is necessary for the virus to enter a cell you no longer get this the uh, signal and if you Use If you overexpress C gas that isn't active, you again lose a signal. So they showed that you need to have a virus. It needs to be able to fuse so the virus contents can get inside of the cell. And you need active C gas for the signal to propagate, which all kind of points to this idea that there's something inside of the virus that is activating the, d- the dendritic cell. They, they actually do this other experiment that I liked. It's a more HIV-centric experiment using a different restriction factor so they the expression of this protein tetherin inhibits budding of hiv so if you if you google this tetherin and hiv you can look at em pictures and you can see this protein is physically holding the virus particle in like from leaving the the cell so like the whole particle is almost budded but there's this protein just anchoring it to the cell and so if you hmm. if you make these viruses in the presence of tetherin so now like this, the virus cannot leave the cell um, you also lose a signal further pointing to the virus holding something um, that's activating inside hmm.
2: is that the same protein that's responsible for those big long t-cell tethers where I you get,
1: do not know.
2: So there's this interesting, I think uh, Thorsten Mempel published a paper a while back basically showing that if you've got T cells in a lymph node that are infected with HIV, they form these huge filaments. I mean, sometimes I think a couple hundred microns, you know, where a T cell is probably 10 microns in size, but uh-huh. then they get these huge long tethers to each other over huge amounts of space. And I wonder if it's the same protein.
1: I would, I would guess it's either the same protein or some sort of virus synapse,
2: yeah.
1: um, something where like the virus proteins are fusing the cells together. Hmm. But yeah, so, so they, um, they still couldn't determine whether or not it's the actual presence of active C-gas or C-GAMP. And so...
2: So this is whether it's the enzyme that creates the mediator or the mediator itself.
1: Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. So, I mean, the easiest way to get around this is just to look for the presence of cGAMP in these <laughs> particles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they so basically, it's a really simple experiment. They just isolated their their viruses, they lysed them open, and um, there's the a nice, a really cool thing about cGAMP is that it's a small molecule, so it's heat resistant, it's resistant to DNases, RNAs. Protonases. So you can do all these treatments to an extract and essentially um, inactivate all of your different PAMPs, all of your different signaling molecules. You boil them, you spin them down, and you'll be left with this extract of just dinucleotides. Um, And so they tested to see if the extract was still immunostimulatory, meaning that CGAMP is present there after they do all these just throw this extract through the ringer. I do this all the time. Um, <laughs> and, and then they sent that extract out for basically identification through mass spectrometry. And they see the presence of the C-GAMP when they um, do mass spec on it. Yeah. Do we want to explain I, mass spec?
2: <laughs> no, but I think <laughs> okay. I think it's a good public service announcement for people in biology. I think biochemistry and chemistry in general scares people away in biology because they remember organic and things and they get afraid of things like mass spec and NMR. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would just encourage people these, like this mass spec experiment is cut and dry. It's just done, right? And you could, from a biological perspective, have answered this in a number of different ways and none of them would have been as clean as just running it through a mass spec. So So if you don't know how these things work and you're a biologist- It is a really difficult
1: mass spec experiment. It, it, is is, hard, right, it is a hard right, but one. you, but it, you
2: should, should be able to know what mass spec roughly helps you answer oh, and yeah. NMR and things like this and yeah. not be afraid to employ them because oftentimes it is the simplest and most straightforward way of doing it.
1: Yeah, it's a yes or no. <laughs>
2: right, exactly. Is it there? Yes, it is. Okay, yeah. moving yeah. on. Yep. So
1: essentially what they show is that when a virus... Well, what the, what the hypothesis is is that when the virus infects a cell and it activates the immune system, not only do you secrete interferon from that cell to warn the other cells, the viruses that leave have the potential to package cGAMP into the virus. And then when they infect a new cell, they now have this little alarm alarm bell with them. So it's essentially like putting a cowbell on a cow. The cell before anything happens, the Cgam activates the uh, sting and you can get this antiviral response and hopefully beat the virus before it replicates. I like
2: um, that in that metaphor, the cow is infectious. <laughs> like, like someone's really afraid of cows, and so you put a bell on the cow, and then that person is warned that the cow is there. <laughs> That's, exactly. Yep, I really like that metaphor a lot.
1: So, yeah, are, so
2: <laughs> go ahead.
1: I was going to say, there are a couple. And, and so then they, they also looked at two other DNA viruses, mouse CMV and MVA, which is related to vaccinia. Um, and they they also found cgamp present in these in these cells or in these viruses when you produce them in the presence of of cgas so the, both of these viruses have dna genomes when they replicate they theoretically will activate cgas um and then cgamp is made and can be packaged into these viruses
2: yeah so i was reading this first of all all of that's really cool i like this idea that the cell can just sort of produce mediators yeah. Right. Uh, pro-inflammatory mediators and because the cytoplasm is getting packaged basically into the virus like all of those danger mediators are also going to get packaged into the virus which I guess theoretically makes sense but I would never have come up with you know the idea that that's actually happening but it does make me wonder because C-GAMP is not the only small molecule mediator right so there are pro-apoptotics
1: Oh okay. Yeah.
2: Right. So yeah. if a cell is undergoing apoptosis, you get cytochrome C release from the mitochondria and now mm-hmm. that's in the cytoplasm, presumably cytochrome C could get packaged into a virus as well and then cytochrome activate c an apoptosome.
1: Cytochrome C is significantly larger than c gamp
2: Is it? Is oh, it that yes. much larger? Oh. Mhm. Oh, yeah. I'm totally. I'm totally screwing up my.
1: I mean, C GAMP is very tiny. It's, a, it's the size of two nucleotides.
2: No, I assumed that cytochrome C was also very small. Um, and I must be.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it is small. It is small, as. I mean, it is small, but I, it's not quite that small.
2: No, it's not.
1: It's a pretty complicated molecule. Yeah. I think you can actually run it off on um, a protein gel.
2: Yeah, yep. So, so I think so it's a like protein KD maybe? It, yeah, is a bad example, actually. That is a protein. For some reason, I thought cytochrome C was a uh, a much smaller Well, it smaller has it has
1: like it. that tetra, what is that, what does that word? Sorry, that yeah. heme-like, I couldn't yeah. get the actual chemical word to pop <laughs> my, I can spell it actually, but I couldn't say it. But it has like that heme-like um, molecule in it,
2: sure. which sure.
1: I mean, still is pretty, I mean, it's like probably five times the size of C-GAMP.
2: Um, Yeah. So, so yeah, let's drop that one. But how about things like (laughs) lipid, lipid mediators, lipid mediators, pro-inflammatory lipid mediators might be looked at. Um, Uric acid Mm -hmm. is very small, you know, and we know that, uh, activation can come. Exactly. So it does make me wonder how many groups now, uh, that this paper have come out are looking for other pro-inflammatory mediators that are being packaged inside of viruses.
1: Yeah, maybe small little um, something to activate the um, inflammasome, that'd be great.
2: Right, exactly, Um, exactly. So maybe we can get a siren on the cow in addition to a (laughs) bell.
1: It's like basically, just loading a shotgun and taping it to the back of the cow.
2: <laughs> Wait, now the, no, but now, now the cow is more dangerous. <laughs>
1: no, no, no. It's a sh- okay. We just got dark, but it would like theoretically kill the cow.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> like quickly, you
1: no. kill the cow. You like, went the, in a different um,
2: direction there than I did.
1: What was that movie with the Javier Bardem? I was gonna say yeah. there will be blood, but that's not it. No Country for Old Men. Okay. It's like the uh, cow, the air yeah. gun. Yep. Not, that's for killing cows. Yeah. For those of you who didn't grow up on a farm.
2: <laughs> this metaphor <laughs> fell apart. Although I did like it right up until the shotgun, I think. So that will be my cartoon for the week.
1: Yeah. I will say that um, the one the one caveat with this paper is that... Um, so they, they make their viruses in the presence of sea gas that's being overexpressed. So sea gas doesn't have to be activated. Viruses encode... Mm-hmm. Um, lots of different proteins to try to turn off the innate immune system. So proteins that would cleave C-gas or block it from activating. So in a natural infection with a fully functional virus, these viruses could potentially turn off C-gas, stop cGAMP from being made, and then cGAMP can no longer be loaded into a particle.
2: That would be an awful experiment. I'll bet, because it's a science paper, right? I'll yeah. bet that they were asked for the production of an experiment that would show you that in vivo, it is packaged, but I God, that would be awful.
1: I mean, I assume that's why they use MVA. It doesn't really replicate, I mean, it doesn't replicate in like human or mouse cells. You have to propagate it, I think, in chicken cells, Mm -hmm. Um, just because it's such a a puny, weak virus. Please don't strike me down, (laughs) Vaxinia. I'm talking bad about it. Yeah. I mean, I work with viruses all the time, so I kind of feel like they have um, like personalities. So I don't want to anger their the whims of don't want to
2: anger vaccinia.
1: (laughs) But it is like kind of a a weak ass virus. Um Okay.
2: Okay. So so this may not uh be something that the immune system or the virus I'm sorry has not thought about and and countered is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, yeah. So if you want to stop the intracellular signaling from occurring, um you would probably you could you could target sting so there is no interferon made, but it's very easy also just to I mean, theoretically, it could be easy to target c-gas as well and stop all the c-gant production. Hmm.
2: I also wonder, could you have a sequester in a virus? Is there a way that you could sequester those small molecules in a virus that that was a major problem? Now, I'm, I'm trying to think of all the ways I could think of for a virus to prevent the dissemination of that mediator from one cell to another.
1: So, yes, you could sequester. Many viruses replicate in replication factories and they can be membrane bound Um, and the, the idea behind that i mean this it's a little theological but the idea is that these complexes are membrane bound not only to increase like the the enzyme kinetics of the actual virus replication but also to evade host sensing so if you never showed your dna to the cell so c gas could never touch it you could you could sequester yourself off in the cell and um, prevent any sort of like c from getting in or c from ever being produced.
2: Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm sure that somebody will come through and look at all the ways that, you know, this process is disturbed in real viruses. Is that what you said before? I think I heard you say real yeah, viruses. I mean, So
1: a lot of viruses <laughs> we use in, in lab are
2: attenuated
1: for safety. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we don't, start pandemics like Vince, Vincent Racaniello said we might have done with flu once upon a time.
2: Yeah. Oops. So, oops. Sorry um, everyone.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah. So it's it's nice and it's nice to not have to get titered for your viruses every three months to make sure you right, can accidentally it, infect yourself.
2: Right, but it seems like it's fun. You said it was fun, so you know <laughs> you, maybe did, more active viruses in labs. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well why don't we uh, Why don't we finish it up there then?
1: Yeah, sounds and
2: good. Great. So this has been Audio Immunity. Uh, Kevin has left us sadly for this last portion, but I'm Matt, and with me again is Kate. See you guys. And we are around on Facebook, I believe, and we have an RSS feed open. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm the technologically deficient one in the group. So I'm just going to refer you to other episodes that I'm sure you've heard at this point. If not, go listen to some other episodes. And uh, until next time, watch out for the cows with bells and sirens. <laughs> See you awesome. later. Guys.